Good morning. It is Monday, September 2nd, 7.37 a.m. It's Labor Day. Um, hope you guys have a chance to enjoy some leisure time on this um, kind of weird holiday. Um, I will be working as usual. I tried to get a lot of work done yesterday. Um, I got a bunch of really cool clothes in, and so it took me a while to just sort everything out. Mending, I'm gonna be doing a, a ton of mending today. I got a lot of orders, um, which is fabulous. So, yeah, I was, I, I didn't even do tarot yesterday because, like, I just, I think I worked like 12 hours, just really worked my ass off, then I made myself a big old dinner. Um, I've really been into poaching chicken breast in white wine or rosé with a lot of butter and garlic, and it's so good. Oh my God, it's so delicious. I don't even know why I like it so much. Um, but I've been craving it. And that sauce that it makes is incredible. So I made that last night. And I also made an artichoke for myself. Because I was like, hey, that's a good way to have more of that sauce. And I know artichokes are not exactly in season. But they had them and I got one. And, and it was delicious. Um, yeah, so I made that, I had a huge salad, a couple glasses of red wine, a Bordeaux, the Bordeaux was quite delicious as well. So yeah, man, that butter, that buttery wine sauce is like my favorite thing ever. I think it would be good with shrimp as well, but of course, you know, get the sauce simmering by itself and then add the shrimp at the last minute basically shrimp scampi, but more wine. Oh, so good. I live for that stuff. So yeah, uh, I did that. Um, it's just been a, a week of heavy, you know, heavy work. I've, I've got so much work to do all the time. Um, yesterday I did laundry as well. It was a moderate amount of laundry. It wasn't an insane amount, but it had to be done. And as I was walking to the laundromat, everyone was lined up outside of Mission Pie, which is hilarious. There was this, I mean, if I had more time, I would have done some people watching across the street because there were like every single, I mean, I know that it has like a profound effect on the community. I know there's cool people that have worked there. Their lives are affected by its closing. Mad respect for them. Don't worry. But, oh, my God. The pie is just not good. <laughs> um, and, you know, to me, it's just so funny to, to, to see this, like, this line. These people lined up for their, their precious pies that aren't even good. I mean, if you could get a pie that will not fall apart when you, when you like just put your fork in it 
like it shouldn't, you know, look like, you know, some sort of like excised tumor, you know, um, Amisha said that she got a pie there and didn't even, they didn't even give her the bottom of the pie. So it was like a shepherd's pie, but a fruit version. They didn't even give her the bottom of the pie when she ordered a slice. So there's, that's just the beginning. Probably because it was so damn soggy, you couldn't even lift it up. So they, um, so yeah, there were like some really twee. It was so funny. Um, you know, you, you basically make th three trips to the laundromat. You know, you walk it down, you put the load in. Then you do, then you take the loads out, you put them in the dryer, then you walk back and you fold the clothes and take them out of the dryer. So on the third trip, there was this lady who was just, oh, she was just so upset that it was closing and she looked like she'd kind of gotten dressed up a little bit. Which is fine, but I'm just like, oh, this is so not my scene. We are so not compatible as people. Um, she was still waiting in line. <laughs> and um, when I came out from folding my laundry, she had finally gotten her precious pies. I'm just like, ugh, those are the ugliest pies in the world. Um, my favorite place to, to get pie from is, is in Houston and it's called House of Pies and it is an A-frame it is a 24-hour diner and the waiters and waitresses have been there forever and they wear these little polyester dresses that are like brown that are real short and then the men wear like some brown slacks you know and now you probably can't smoke in there, but you used to be able to smoke and all the waiters and waitresses would smoke in this one little area. And it was always, always, always busy. It was never slow in there because everything there was delicious. And their pies were just, everything was so intact. I would get a Mississippi mud pie or like a velvet, a velvet pie. I like, I kind of like custard pies myself. Um, or their blueberry pie was so good and everything just held together so well and their crust was just so crispy you know the ridged part of the crust that is on the outer rim of the crust that is my favorite part and that is my litmus test to see if it's going to be a good pie and you just you take your fork and it just it goes through there's enough shortening to keep the crust intact but it's flaky all the way down and it's just it's just incredible. It's just so good. I would, um, when I was a very young, you know, I'd go there after a show or something like that. And I'd get a Monte Cristo sandwich and a hot cocoa. And it was so funny. Every time I ordered hot cocoa, the waitress would be like, you mean chocolate? I was like, yep, that's what I mean. But I say hot cocoa. So I'm just like, you know, I forget that's how what they say and the the hot cocoa would come with its own little um pitcher of whipped cream <laughs> it was already like whoosh. they would just like you know spray the whipped cream into there and 
so I would get that. I wasn't drink. I didn't start drinking coffee until like way later. So I would get that, and it was such a treat. Um. I and then sometimes I would just get get pie and hot cocoa, and it was really good, really really good. Um. And it was always good no matter what hour. So that was my favorite place to get pies ever. And so everything is just held to that standard of, of deliciousness. You walk in and they have these cases that are glass and they have these rotating pies in the case. And people just constantly eat them and they're being refilled consistently, which is so amazing. You want to see those pies out there like that. When you go into Mission Pie, they just have that one slanted case, weird slanted case with, I don't know, maybe one or two pies that, and then like a bunch of salads and things. And it's like, no, I would like to see them try to make a Monte Cristo sandwich. <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> They'd probably dip it in some like heavy, <laughs> you know, like. I don't know, probably whole wheat batter and um, I don't know if they would even allow ham in there. But uh, good luck to everyone who's been affected by that. I I hope that, that a good pie place comes out of it and a real pie place, not a performative place where you get crappy pies. I was very excited when Mission Pie first came to the to the neighborhood because I was like oh I love pie restaurants you know it was just its own thing and it had this vibe to it every time I went to Mission Pie it reminded me of the cafe in a museum okay so there's an institutional feeling to it I think it was the way the tables were designed and also the little children's tables that sometimes I was forced to sit at the, the child-sized table when it was too full. And I just, I felt like a little widget, you know. Um, so yeah, the line was going on for hours and hours. Also yesterday was Colin's memorial celebration of life at the knockout. I was not able to get away enough to go. Because I was so covered in work and I just wasn't able to get out. I also, sometimes I don't do well at memorials. Um, They're very heavy and I start to pretty much just take on, I don't know, I just, I'm very sensitive and people's emotions around me just... I feel like I take on a lot of sorrow and and then it's just too hard. It's too hard for me to separate the the sorrow that I'm feeling around me and the the energy around me. It's hard for me to separate it from my emotions in a way. Um like the sadness of it, you know. Um but I, I really do, I really do think that um, it is a loss for for the community and for the city that 
someone so young has has gone and uh, someone who was so well loved and it's that's hard so let's see what else i am still reading the book about the panama canal um and i guess i'm about a third of the way in and the the way the panama canal was really was set up was extremely racist and very very segregationist even more so than than in the states um us americans started construction on the panama canal uh in 1903 and we were there for 11 years until 1914 and at first there was there was an extremely everything was so split up and so fragmented and worked so inefficiently um so of course you know they got the the white american men down there um and they had west indians and they got people from jamaica and they had black african american men uh coming down there as well um at first they wouldn't let them then they had chinese men down there and then they had the britishers coming to help them and it was a big clusterfuck um because they had all all these different people on different pay scales and also and also different forms of currency that was the thing that kind of blew my mind so if you were a white man you were eligible to be paid in gold and then everyone else got paid in silver um there were a few black men american men that were allowed to be paid in gold but there were always disputes over it and it was inconsistent and then there were some west indians um that were that were allowed to be paid in gold but of course you know they basically died over it they lost their lives over it because the jealousy if if word got out um skilled labor was only allowed to be performed by white men um at first um <laughs> but then a lot of, due to the hardship of 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 the work on the and the conditions on the canal not everyone they needed more people to do the skilled labor so they finally broke down and let a few black people do it and a few uh a few west indians um perform things you know like research and you know operating you know being engineers operating the machinery they were basically using a lot of a lot of the non-white people uh to dig you know just to dig and and um and to like haul things okay so just kind of and they were very much dehumanized there were people dying on the canal every single day from the conditions and the hardship there plus the heat and the malarial hotbed that it was they eventually built a small hospital there on the canal and it was 
mostly women were the nurses. They had a few doctors and this, the hospital was incredibly segregated and none of the, none of the nurses wanted to work on the floors, the women's floor or the floor where they had the black people and then the West Indians. Everyone just wanted to work on the white floor because that was the only one that had proper facilities. That was the only one that had the proper medication and the one that was the only one that was adequately staffed. And they probably themselves were also racist. It was just so bonkers. Even the post office was segregated down there. They also had this thing where where the white men working, they could get a six-week vacation every year. They could go back to their families. But no one else was allowed to have vacations. (laughs) So that caused a lot of resentment. Because when you work like that every day, you need a vacation. Um, It just, you know, it blows my mind. How about this, people? Let people that can do the work, do the work. Do the correct job. Give people proper training. Get them out there and, and, you know, get the job done. Pay people, you know, kind of a median pay based on the description of their job. Regardless of, of where they're from or who they are. Give them that medium pay. Make it easier for your bookkeepers, you know, just, and then, you know, get your raises coming in or, you know, be paid according to the skill. Like, so instead of having some people working on the same job, having different wages, because the Chinese worked, the Chinese and the, um, West Indians, they worked the cheapest. And I believe the Chinese were working even cheaper. Um, the culture, the way, the culture that emerged from this, though, was a, a culture of enslavement, though. Um, because you were, they, you were technically allowed to leave the job, but due to the infighting and, and the political, um, the politics, of that had kind of developed in the canal, you probably wouldn't be able to leave out of there alive, most likely, especially if you were, um, especially if you were West Indian or Chinese. At the very, very bottom, you would probably get about 10 cents an hour. Um, it just, there's I'm still I'm still researching it but I wanted to share with you guys a little bit of like what I had um what I had learned so far how fascinating it was um it was just so the idea of like this white you know white man being a better and harder worker was such a joke and being able to and you know being able to withstand these conditions. No, they weren't. They weren't they were, they weren't any better than anyone else. In fact, they were there a lot of them uh you couldn't really tell them what to do and they were they weren't accustomed to this level of hard work. There were a lot of um a lot of privileged yebos that were looking for adventure. 
Um, there were, of course, some skilled, you know, there were some skilled white men and there were, you know, the ones that worked the best, the, the white guys that survived the best were the ones that had already, you know, worked on farms and been, you know, worked in blacksmith shops. Those were the ones that were actually able to kind of keep up with everybody else. So they were just perpetuating this white myth, you know, that a white man could do the job better, but no, they couldn't. At the end of the day, the job needed to get done, and there were a lot of jobs that were being undone because nobody wanted to do them. No white guy wanted to do them. And so they'd finally have to let someone who wasn't white do the job. And by finally, I meant, you know, something like months or years later, like, okay, well, finally, let someone who's not white do the job. It's so, it's so mind-blowing just how much better it, the building of the canal would have gone if they had treated people better. They treated people with more humanity and, and fairness how much better it would have gone and if they had given people the support they they needed if people had if they had encouraged a culture of support there how much easier it would have been to get it done now it's still really hard work but infighting was encouraged divisions were encouraged amongst the Jamaicans and the Panamanians, and the Spaniards, the American black people, everything, everyone was encouraged to remain separate, not socialize with each other. They had this big thing called a commissary, and that was like a mixture between, it's kind of like Costco or something, it's like a mixture between a grocery store, a mercantile, HR department, that's where you take all your disputes. It was this giant commissary, and it was full of like bureaucratic red tape all the time. People would complain about their infidelities. Um, you know, um, that's a place where you'd go to complain, and there were so many people complaining, and so many resources that were just would just run out so fast. Um, but the one of the things that they had at the commissary was entertainment and it was only for white people to watch um and you know you could dance there and that sort of thing but yeah only white people were allowed to have such entertainments and such diversions uh they would even they would even ship people down there ship like vaudeville pavilion entertainers down there just to entertain the white people it's ridiculous it's so ridiculous but that's where that's where I'm at with it I'm also every morning one of the things I do for my shop is I look for inspiration and I look for inspiring images sometimes and I have to have it posted by 9 a.m. Sometimes it takes longer than others, and other times I find the inspiration right away. And um, it's part of my brand and my 
culture, my company culture that I've developed is to share inspiration with people, not just selling clothes. One of the images I stumbled upon uh, was a, were these quilted, bulky, uh, ungainly uh, costumes from the uh, Weimar era uh, in the early 1920s. Um, at first I thought they were in Berlin, but actually they'd been constructed in Hamburg, Hamburg or whatever. Um, and I was curious as to who made them. And I stumbled upon a a small story that accompanied it, accompanied these costumes. Um, so they were made, the costumes were made by a couple, but now it's speculated they were mostly just made by the, the woman, of course. Um, her name was Lavinia Schultz, and she was born in Lübben, on June 23rd, 1896. And she was a at a very young age, so like at like in her in her teens, she was already displaying talent, like as a seamstress and a dancer. A lot of times it goes hand in hand with small dance companies. Um you kind of you everyone kind of pitches in together like making the sets, doing the music. It's very common to do that, that you'd, you'd be both. And she was kind of discovered by basically this pervert named Lothar Schreier. And she was his first student. He couldn't make it in Berlin, Schreier. And so he decided to move back home to Hamburg, Hamburg, and start a dance company there with Lavinia, who was his first student. And he had this, his first production was performed in 1918, or maybe a little earlier, actually. I might have gotten the dates wrong. Um, her first performance um, was performed nude, in this, this thing called Sancte Susana. So he was kind of one of the oddballs that, um, you know, he's on the outskirts of the surrealist movement of Dadaism. It's so funny, like with surrealists, they, they don't quite know what to do with women, really just like any other movement that's male-dominated, um, they still manage to, like, objectify women in the extreme, and, you know, they kind of, they use, they use women, basically. Um, so the other, the, the, the more famous production that, that uh, Lothar Schreier had, had cooked up uh, was the one where Lavinia's costumes really came into light. Um, there was a robot dance, and that dance was called Skirinschmol, and that is where Lavinia met her future life partner, Walter Holt, who was one of the robots, and 
they ended up kind of leaving Schreier's wing and going off to dance on their own. So Luther's Luther Schreier's dance company was quite small already, and I'm feeling that it was not successful. Um, but it, you know, apart from that, uh, it, you know, he he couldn't even keep his his dancers, and they would they would run off with each other. Um, they they had a different idea of expressionism. They thought that uh, that expressionism had to do with machines, and that that we were machines. <laughs> don't know why. Don't know. Don't know what really was informing that. Um, probably because we were still in this kind of mechanical age, coming into coming into like the little budding bits of technology that we know now. That could be part of it. Um, they thought that art should be very hard and an expression of struggle. So the costumes they made were, they were extremely heavy and cumbersome. And they looked, they looked kind of like, you know, like Grimace from McDonald's. They looked kind of like that. They were silly looking. (laughs) But they had all these like, circular Saturnian rings around them and all these kind of harsh semi-organic shapes. So basically you kind of like a tree or something, an interpretation of a tree. One of the, uh, one of the things that the couple, they were a young couple. Okay. So it's like, you know, early twenties by this point, they, they didn't believe in money and they, they truly did not believe in money. And, but somehow they managed to get an apartment. Um, I think part of why they had trouble, you know, they, they didn't believe in money is because they also had trouble earning it. They had a really hard time earning money. Um, Walter Holt, the husband, was really sketchy apparently and very dishonest and shady and Lavinia was very jealous and violent and she was always really scared that he was going to run off with another woman and you know I saw the pictures there's one picture of them together he is not cute he is not cute also honey wake up. Nobody wants your man. Okay. That's one thing people forget sometimes because they're in, in the thick of their relationship. Nobody wants your man. Okay. Um, I would not personally want to try and date a guy who already has a girlfriend who is not cute, who does not want to have a job and has no way of supporting himself because that means I would support them. (laughs) I don't want to do that. Um, it's really funny. Like it's, there's really no way around it, but you got to have a job. You have to work in order to get, to get someone, you know, that's, that's cool. You have to, you have to be employed in some way, either in your own business, ideally, or, or working, 
you know, working every day. You have to work. And uh, especially if you're a man. So, um, so yeah, so they lived in this apartment that had no bed, no hot water, and also no floor. So I'm guessing it was like on a ground floor. And just sounds awful um and they were also always in their dance tights which back then were made of wool okay and and the reason why they did this is so that they could always they could always be working on their dances all the time so you can imagine the type of environment they had it was like intense and they were they were kind of masochistic because they were trying to move around in these very unwieldy costumes which by the way the more were made that were made they she had made 30 costumes walter the husband started taking credit for the costumes and even to this day it's really you can't really pinpoint who exactly made them but let's put it this way she was a seamstress for a really long time and that was mainly what she did when she wasn't dancing and he wasn't one. <laughs> so if you can put two and two together. Uh, so at one point things got really, really bad between them. She had, uh, Lavinia had a baby and one night in June in 1924 in Hamburg in their horrible apartment with probably like no food no money no like you know hot water no bed by the way they had no furniture no bed uh she shot she shot Walter and then she shot herself and the baby was found alive between them and I don't know really what became of the baby I'm guessing that they took it to a um, it was a baby boy so they took him to probably a children's home or or a convent or something so his identity to this day probably can't be traced he's you know if he if he is alive he's in his late 90s poor baby poor baby so much trauma so much pain so little but yeah I, that was a a, f- a fascinate it's fascinating to me that that era of time they were trying to Lavinia and Walter were trying to basically get back to more pagan pagan shamanism in a way um, they wanted to create a a movement that was devoid of any Judeo-Christian belief system, which I guess at that time was radical. And they wanted to to uh, return to kind of more of a forest worship thing. I think there's a lot easier ways to do that. And that's one thing, one thing uh, you end up learning as you go through life and you're like, you love art and, and music and things. Not everyone's going to make it, and not all their ideas are feasible. Um, not all their ideas are 
you know, translate to, to real life in the real world. The, the only way that I was able to find photos of them, the only way that it, it, that this story even trickled down to me was that they were, the costumes had been in storage at a museum in Hamburg for years, for years. So after Lavinia died, you know, whoever came to the apartment, they were like, oh, these should be in a museum. So they were sitting in the storage. They were never displayed. The museum took them. And they had them in their archives. And somebody was kind of, you know, probably moving things around. And kind of unearthed these costumes in 1989. Which is a perfect time. The 80s, even though it was a trail end of the 80s. The 80s is a perfect time for a revival of German Expressionism. An interest and expressionism had probably heightened by then or been reignited. So yeah, they brought them up, dusted them off. I think they might have even uh, performed, probably performed a dance in them. I know that they did that with the Bauhaus dance costumes. So yeah, they're just sitting waiting to be discovered again. (laughs) That's another thing about art and obscurity. You never know who's going to stumble on it. It might not always be good. And it's all in the eye of the beholder. It's all in the eye of the person who deems it worthy to be seen. You know? Um, a million years ago, back in Houston, I lived in a art space. And I was part of a dance company. <laughs> and I made costumes. I was about Lavinia's age. I was about... 19 or 20. Um, I made up a couple of my own dances. Um, I had a kind of a volatile relationship with this guy there who's kind of a loser, a bad artist. He, He made horrible art. He was really jealous of my whatever I was doing. I love color and you know, I loved to do installations and so and that sort of thing. And he was really into painting these ugly paintings <laughs> um, with with cheap acrylic paint. Um, so there was a, like a lot of rivalry between us. Uh, we kind of hated each other, but I also loved him. You know how that goes. Um. I did cheat on him a bunch of times because he was horrible in bed. I mean, horrible. I I was not even very experienced with sex then, but I, you know, I knew then even that he was bad in bed. He was that bad. Um, and he was also had like a lot of guilt too. So every time we, like the few times, the handful of times we had sex in the two years we were together, uh, he would just, you know, act like it was just, he was just so dirty and horrible. I was like, just get over it, dude. I want some, you know, I want to have a cigarette. (laughs) How's that? Um, but yeah, it was a very, in some ways I could relate to Lavinia's story and I was like, oh, that, 
that could have easily been minus the gun. I never would have killed anybody that easily could have been, you know, me or anyone in that building. Cause there was a small dance theater and we did have an austere life. We were living without air conditioning in, in the, one of the hottest cities in America. Okay. I would pass out from the heat. Um, you know, I think I was, I think I made like $140 a week or something like that, plus exchange for room and board. And it was, it was intense. It was really intense in there. Uh, there was a speakeasy. It was, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. There was a lot of expressionist stuff happening. I really liked the, I really liked being a part of the dance company though. Um, I really loved Richie, the dance instructor, who was a, a trained ballet dancer. Um, he'd been with the Houston Ballet for 14 years prior to starting his own company at the art space. And, you know, he really made some beautiful dances. And I was, I felt privileged to participate in some way by making the costumes and one time they even did a ballet based on some songs that I wrote that was really fun. Um, and then I had fun coming up with my own dances too. Um, so yeah, there are, there are some funny parallels, some relatable memes in that story. Speaking of Panama, one of the things I stumbled upon, upon today, uh, not today, three days ago when I was picking for clothes was a Christmas card and it has a picture of Santa Claus like a Coca-Cola Santa type and his his hair and the fur of his hat is dusted with this like delightful sparkly snowy stuff and it's it's a it's quite a beautiful card but that's where the beauty ends. <laughs> Let me read it to you. So there's the text, like the printed text that came with the card and that will segue into it, okay? Dear Henry, Emmy, Rosalie, and Gail, Christmas time is a wishing time, so here's a wish for you. For happiness enough to last each day the new year through. Love, Mitz, May, Debbie, and Joan. Mimi. Here's where it really gets real. Time to wish you a happy holiday season. It's not going to be so merry for you. First Christmas without Jimmy is going to be rough on all of you. There's really nothing we can say or do which is going to make it any easier. Please take good care of yourselves. It's hard to get in the holiday spirit here because it's so warm. Although decorations are coming out and we hear Christmas carols, which is helping us to get in the real spirit. We'll write again later after I get my holiday mail out. Send mother her card. There... Oh, let me read it. Send mother her card there, but I won't send her any packages there. Instead, I'll send you 
some money, $5. So will you get her something for us? Take care and love and have a nice holiday. Love, May, 1967, Panama. My God, she is so grumpy. You know, she could have offered her condolences in a much nicer way instead of being so negative immediately. I wonder what brought her to Panama. That's interesting. Maybe they're missionaries or something. Also, uh, about uh, five days ago on Wednesday, I found two, two things, two pieces of paper that were crumbled up on the alley behind my house. So the first page says this. So, I've got a question to ask you. Have you ever sat down and thought about how different your life would be if I didn't walk up to you and ask if you... And then it stops. Uh, first of all, they need to learn better sentence structure. That sentence could have been written a lot more efficiently. Um, But I can kind of relate to the sense of regrets, like the what if, what could have happened, would my life have been different if I met you or not, how, how we affect each other. And I think that, that the letter writer was trying to capture that, but gave up, which is also saying something. And then the, the second one, the second page was I really wit. I'm guessing they're saying I really wish, which is also interesting to me. Um, this person is just living with regret, and it, the papers were all crumpled up in a ball. I unfurled them, uh, uncrumpled them, but I can definitely relate. I only have probably a couple of regrets, and you know, my life ain't half over yet, so things could change, except for one thing I is is, you know, unchangeable, but the other, you know, one or two things, I think that, you know, there's room for a change, and I, I will sometimes examine those regrets, and realize that some of the reasons why I have regrets is because of fear, um, but yeah, hopefully by the time I'm, I'm gone, by the time I'm dead, I'm dead, I will have died with no regrets. Anyway, I hope that you guys have an amazing Labor Day and do a bunch of really fun stuff. A bunch of really fun stuff. <laughs> Gorge yourself on delicious food. Sit on lawn chairs. Um, I'm going to be probably watching some movies. Uh, maybe go see a matinee. Anyway, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye.